Uh, what makes a good leader? Uh, who should we follow? Uh, I'm in the middle of uh, a two-year Reach Australia leadership development program, so I hope by the end of it I'll be able to tell you what a good leader is. Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by good. Um, this guy, in one sense, is a good leader. Um, Adolf Hitler was a good leader in the sense that he was effective. People followed him. But that doesn't mean he was a morally good leader, does it? So perhaps a simple definition of what a good leader is, is that they are both effective and morally good. Not only do they know how and where to lead people, but they also work for the good of those who are led, rather than the good of the leader. Now this section of Hebrews is all about good leaders, in particular that Jesus is a good leader, that he's someone worth following. He's effective and he works for the good of those he leads. It continues the big theme of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. Chapter 1, we saw that Jesus brings a better message than angels. Chapter 2 shows that he's a better leader, a better leader than angels, and into chapter 3, a better leader than Moses. And so what all of that means, chapter 3, verse 1, is that we should fix our thoughts on him. We should meditate, pay attention, examine, study him, because he's a better leader. Out of all the leaders in the world who are calling you to follow them, effective and ineffective leaders, loud and quiet leaders, selfless and self-serving leaders, egotistical and humble, bullying and weak, out of all those leaders, Jesus is a better leader. He's one worth following, so fix your thoughts on him. I want you to notice verse 10, right there in the middle of the, the passage we're studying. There's so much in this verse, we will come back to it. But just notice in verse 10 how Jesus is described. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that word for author, it's an interesting one. Uh, in Greek, it's archegos. Archegos. Uh, the old NIV translated author, the one we just read, the new NIV chain, uh, changes it and translates it as pioneer. Uh, the ESV has founder. Uh, the English Standard Bible, or what was the Holman, uh, has source, the source of our salvation. And intriguingly, and I quite like the New King James translates captain, the captain of our salvation. Now, whenever you get a range of different translations for a word, even if you don't know the original language, that's a good uh, idea that there's something interesting going on with that word. So it's got two sorts of meanings. It can either mean pioneer or originator, or it can mean leader and ruler. Now, in verse 10, I think it's closer to the first of those meanings because Jesus is the source of our salvation. He's the one who begins, who initiates, who makes our salvation happen. Now, that's a good reason to follow him, isn't it? To pay close attention to him, as chapter 3, verse 1 encourages us. 
If he's the one who can lead us to rescue, then it makes sense to watch him closely. Don't take your eyes off him. He's the mountain guide who leads you through danger to safety. He's the doctor whose advice and treatment saves your life. He's the army scout who knows the way through the landmines and can lead his brothers brothers through the minefield. So watch him. Now chapter 2 is all about why Jesus is the better leader for us to watch. Uh, If Jesus is the author of our salvation, then we should ask the question, what do we need saving from? What's so special that he needs to save us from? Well, go back to the start of our reading, verse 5 of chapter 2, and we get this description of creation. Uh, We're meant to think about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God gave leadership over the world to humanity, to human beings. Adam was there as our representative and everything was subject to him. He was in charge. He was the leader. And verse 6, there's a quote from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8, it's a poem uh, that's reflecting on the honour and dignity that God gave human beings when he created them in his image and when he gave them dominion or, or leadership over the earth to rule, to care, to look after the earth. Or as verse 7 puts it in a quote from Psalm 8, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. The picture is the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walking through the garden with God, naming the animals, tending the garden, everything under their care and their control. Adam as God's second in command, caring, cultivating, ruling God's world. It's a wonderful image of what good leadership is. Wise, beneficial, ethical. Acting for the good of the things he is leading. This is true humanity living out our God-given role. But you don't have to look too far or think too deeply to realise it's hardly an accurate description of our world today, is it? Now, that's what the writer to the Hebrews realises as well. Notice verse 8, the second half. Yet, at present, we don't see everything subject to him. Because, of course, immediately after Genesis chapter 2 comes Genesis chapter 3, very good, (laughs) when sin enters the world and ruins it. Now, our present fallen world does not look like humanity in dominion having control over the world. Most things in our world we have no control over. Weather, sickness, natural disasters, the stock market, our coffee maker breaking down, a flat battery or a puncture on the car when it's most inconvenient. Who's in control? It certainly doesn't seem like us. The reality is we live in a fallen world that is not subject to us. Most of the time we are subject to it. And as we read on, there is one area in particular where our helplessness is seen most clearly, where we are most clearly not in dominion, death. Look down to verse 14. He's talking about Jesus. We'll come back to him in a few moments. But verse 14 says, 
by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's us. That's humanity. All our lives held in slavery by the fear of death. Fear of what the unknown. Fear of the end. Fear of our helplessness, of something beyond our control. That's not ruling. That's a long way from God putting everything under our feet. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much of a ruler or a leader you are in this life. It doesn't matter how rich or influential you are. Death is the great equaliser. It doesn't matter how many academic qualifications you have or how physically attractive you are or fit, how much influence or power you have, how morally good you are. It doesn't matter how talented or successful or popular you are. However much you are able to achieve your potential in this life, however much you think everything is under your feet, you will still die. You will never, on your own, regain that picture from Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honour, everything under your feet. It's impossible. Because in the end, death will win. Unless... Unless you follow the leader, unless you pay close attention to Jesus. We may not be ruling, but Jesus is all Psalm 8 talks about. Jesus is the ultimate human. Jesus achieved the total dominion that mankind was designed for because he beat the greatest foe, the ultimate spoiler, death. And what's more, he won that success for the rest of us. He is the leader we should and can follow. Look at the logic. The end of verse 8 says, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Now that's the plural, him, that's humankind. Then verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who truly does measure up to God's design for humanity. He was lower than the angels. That's during his life on earth. But now he's enthroned in heaven. He's ruling with God, the Father, and everything is under his feet. And how did that happen? Why? Because he suffered death on behalf of everyone, in the place of everyone. He died the death we deserved so we could escape death. And I love that though he suffered death, he only tasted it. Did you notice that? He took a sip. It wasn't permanent. He drank from the cup, but he was immune to its poison. And that's why he's the author of our salvation, verse 10, because he beat death so that we could enjoy the benefits that he won. won. He's the pioneer the founder, the captain. He lives and dies and lives again, expressing the full potential of humanity. Everything subject to him, including death, everything that God created us to be and more. 
And when he saves us, he brings us into that new experience of everything being in submission, including death. He brings us into fulfilling our God-created potential. Verse 10 puts it this way, we've been brought to glory. Which doesn't mean we've died and gone to heaven. I think it means we've been brought to the full potential of our dominion. Notice how verse 10 continues. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So much in that verse. But let's just pick on fitting. It's fitting that he pioneered salvation through suffering. It's appropriate. It's suitable. Why is it fitting that Jesus should bring salvation through suffering? Well, I think it's because human life is suffering. Jesus entered our experience and saved us from it by suffering. That's fitting. He was willing to join our family. Verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus descended to the broken, washed out shadow that was humanity that had fallen from God's design and became one of us. Like us in every way. Not ashamed to stand alongside those he'd come to save. Even to call them brothers. You ever been embarrassed by your siblings? Well, Jesus never was. He was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The twist was the suffering he shared with us was actually the means of defeating that suffering. He became the author of salvation by dying and so defeated death. Now dying, it's the opposite of the way most human leaders achieve victory. Normally we think of dominion and rule and we think of power, violence, aggression, lording it over people. As I was thinking about an example of that, we got the perfect quote this week in the news as Joe Biden announces the death of the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri. And he said, Now justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. And I guess we cheer, don't we? That's what we expect of strong leaders. That's what we think of when we imagine everything in dominion under his feet. But Jesus did it differently. He was perfected. He completed God's plan, not through a deadly drone strike, but through suffering. Not through coming first, but through coming last. Verse 14 makes the point even more wonderfully. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, now listen to this, 
so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. His death destroys death and the one who holds the power of death because he only tasted death and then spat it out again. And so he frees us from the slavery of the fear of death. Just stop and dwell on those words for a moment. Savour them. Rejoice in them. We are freed from the slavery of the fear of death. Isn't that often our Christian experience? Hope in hospital beds. Peace at funerals. Joy and contentment when we receive bad news from the medical specialist. Courage in the face of deadly persecution. Death is dead because of the death of our brother the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus, the one who makes a way through death, who achieves the dominion humanity was designed for and then who leads us into that life, that future, co-rulers with him. It's a glorious picture, but at the moment we don't see much of that rule, do we? In a sense, that's one of the main points of this letter. It's been written to persecuted Christians to encourage them to persevere, to stick at it through the troughs and the valleys, through the persecution from the very worst sorts of human leaders and rulers. The reality is there's not much of the victory being described for them. There's fear, there's suffering, there's death. And it looks a little like that for us as well in our situation. But but we can begin the journey towards that dominion. We can begin to achieve our potential to be freed from the slavery of the fear of death to begin with. And it's all about following our leader though, isn't it? And so we come to the application at the start of chapter 3 that we began with. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. See, if we're to follow him through death into dominion, it begins with trust. Notice it's the faithfulness of Jesus that's highlighted. He stuck at it. He persevered. He He trusted his father. And we are to do the same. We're to fix our thoughts on the faithful Jesus. We're to trust him as our pioneer. We're to trust his appointment by the father. Trust the effectiveness of his sacrifice as high priest. Trust his defeat of death and Satan. And when we do that, it actually makes a practical difference in our life. When we we trust Jesus for those things, we can begin to experience something of what it means to be set free from the slavery of the fear of death. We can begin to experience joy and contentment and courage. And as we fix our thoughts on him, 
we can begin to follow his example. The one who lived the most fulfilled human life ever, the best leader anyone could follow. In particular, we can follow his example as our servant leader who destroyed death by dying, who gave up his life for those he leads. We can follow his example of one who, rather than achieving dominion with violence and power, his victory comes with humble service. Fix your thoughts on that example. Jesus is the better leader. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says he didn't come to be served, but he actually came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he encourages all of his followers that they must do the same. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. That's earthly leadership. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You see, good leaders serve. Good leaders give up their lives for those they lead. Follow leaders like that. Be a leader like that. But don't just look to Jesus' example to inspire you or his example for you to imitate. Look to him for help. Look to him for understanding, for empathy, for power. We sometimes think it must have been easy for Jesus to live the life that he did, to resist temptation, to suffer, to die. After all, he was God. It wasn't difficult. Jesus doesn't know what I went through. It's much harder for me. But look back at the end of chapter 2. When we feel the crushing weight of the world, when we feel like we are under the feet of the world rather than being it being under our feet, Remember Jesus was like us in every way. Verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus achieved his victory and his reign through suffering and death. And God's plan for you will include temptations and suffering as well. God knows he experienced it in his son. Jesus understands. Jesus pleads our case as we suffer. He pleads with uh, with compassion and empathy. But more than just pleading for us, he offers us his power that defeated temptations and suffering. He is able to help. Just hold on to those words. You see, there's no other way that we can achieve our God-given potential, that we can live the life of victory that God designed us for. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it by trying harder, turning over a new leaf, uh, making a New Year's resolution. We can't do it simply by imitating Jesus. We don't have that power. He is able to help walk daily in dependence on Jesus. Jesus. 
Ask him for his power, his strength, his patience, his resilience, his faithfulness, his compassion, his love to be the leader who serves, to help you to be the one who is first in God's kingdom by being last. He is able to help. Our church... Um, we have a mission which is growing followers of Jesus we've mentioned it a bit Uh, we've been thinking about what it means to be a growing follower of Jesus and and we've identified five characteristics a growing follower of Jesus firstly loves God then loves others uh, then is shaped by God's word uh, serves one another and fifthly is on mission Uh, The one I want to focus on today is that if we are a growing follower of Jesus, then we will love one another. We will love other people. Uh, Don't come to church to be served. Don't come to church to have your needs met. Uh, Don't come to church because you like it. I mean, it's great if you do, but that's not why you come. Uh, Come to church to become great by being a servant. Come to church to go last. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 to 14 commands us, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. (laughs) It's a realistic comment, isn't it? If you have to bear with one another and forgive one another, it's saying church is full of sinful people. Don't leave because someone upsets you. Bear with them. Forgive them. If it's small, perhaps you don't need to do the forgiving. You can just do the bearing. If it's a bit more, then maybe you need to work through what forgiveness is about. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. What a church we would be if we look like that. A growing follower of Jesus who loves others will be genuine, encouraging, generous, truth-speaking, inclusive, united, forbearing, forgiving. To what extent do our church gatherings reflect those qualities? To what extent do you reflect those qualities? Take a moment and look at that list. Prayerfully consider it. Which of these qualities do you need to work on? Look to Jesus to help you with them. He's able to help. Look to his example. Look to him for strength. Fix your thoughts on Jesus the pioneer of your salvation. He's bringing you to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. What an amazing description. There is so much in this passage that we haven't been able to touch on. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us by the strength, the power of your spirit to fix our thoughts on Jesus uh, so that we too might... uh, live the life that you designed us for, a life of service, 
uh, a life of dominion over your world, uh, a dominion over sin and death and the fear of death. Uh, Make us, we pray, a people who serve one another in love. For Jesus' sake. Amen.